I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join us on our quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small. A podcast in search of all that moves us beyond words. Your host for this episode is Tenery Taylor. We'd like to welcome those of you who discovered us through our Advent series. And of course, we're always grateful to have our regular listeners along. Constant Wonder will resume weekly drops on January 17th with a new season of Discovery. Look for our trailer in the next couple weeks for a peek into what's coming in the new year. In this episode, though, we want to look back at the year that was. We've put together a sampler, three of our favorite Constant Wonder conversations from 2023. It was hard to choose just three, and if you check out our feed, you'll see why. Our 2023 Highlights episode begins with a grandson. This boy's family had never wanted to ask too many questions about their German grandfather, a Nazi stationed in France during the Second World War. But after this grandfather, a man by the name of Carl Gunner, after he died, his family would learn about his heroism during the war, and they discover that he'd done things that would make them proud. He'd been a Nazi with a complicated past, yes, but he was not the man they'd feared him to be. Here's an excerpt from my conversation with Burkhart Bilger, a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of Fatherland, a memoir of war, conscience, and family secrets. The central character of the story, Carl Gunner, was born in 1899 and raised in the Black Forest of southwestern Germany. His life was shaped by both world wars. These wars upended the way he had thought about the world in his youth. So he was 19 years old. He had been studying to be a priest in the Black Forest and uh, suddenly got this call to the army. It was at the end of the war, 1918, and he shows up in the Western Front and in September of that year, it's the Battle of Meuse-Argonne, and he's in the Argonne Forest, and the Algerian light infantry is attacking the German position. You know, the French had all these colonial soldiers, and he's in a trench with his best friend when in the middle of this, this massive attack, I mean, the Germans are outnumbered, it's the end of the war, it's kind of the last great battle of the war. Um, at night, a mine, a landmine goes off next to him in the trench and a piece of shrapnel goes into his eye, but the more deadly one goes into his best friend. And what's happened is his best friend has been panicking in the trenches next to him. He's a younger soldier, and my grandfather ends up taking him in his arms to comfort him and, and keep him from running into the fight. And that's when the landmine goes off and the piece of shrapnel hits my grandfather's best friend in the back and kills him instantly. And of course, if he hadn't been holding him in his arms, that piece of shrapnel would have hit my grandfather and killed him instead. So it was a devastating event for him, both for himself physically and for him psychologically to lose his friend that way. You wrote, he returned from the war with a sense that never left him that the world was a shattered thing in need of radical repair. How did that belief inform his life after the war? Well, you know, I think he had always been a man of strong belief, a man who needed structures and needed 
rules to live by and beliefs to live by. He'd grown up in this very poor Black Forest village, and and the priesthood was something that to a lot a lot of people it wouldn't have been very appealing. It was a very grim sort of religion, but to him, I think it offered something beyond this kind of sharecropper existence that he had, and he had put his whole faith and his whole mind into it. And was in seminary, really thought that was his life. And so war, to see this senseless slaughter, I mean, to really arrive in 1918, I think there was no hope left in that battle for Germans, for anybody. They'd just seen millions of people die on both sides. And all the idea that he might have had that God is with us, that there's a purpose to this slaughter, I think really just left him in that moment. And what he came out of it with was not wanting to be a priest anymore, but wanting to be a teacher, the sense that what needs to be done here is not pray, but to inform people how to build a more equitable politic, how to build a more equitable society. The terrible irony of that is that led him to Nazism eventually, and a certain kind of blinkered blindness that had its own terrible outcome. But I think at the time, he had just seen this, what seemed to him a shattered world, a shattered economy, and he wanted to find some way to stitch it back together. Here's a story from my family. In the 1940s, my grandfather was doing in-flight training in a B-17 bomber. He hears a voice when there's no one around telling him three times to put on his parachute. Moments after he puts it on, his plane collides with another plane and crashes. His life was spared, but six soldiers died. I thought of that story when I read about your grandfather, Carl Gunner, coming back from the Western Front, you know, at the end of World War One. Yeah, this is a story um, was told to me by my mother and by a couple of villagers in, in the Black Forest. This was a tale that was passed around the village afterwards. He was on the transport back to Germany, kind of wounded and broken, as I said, from the battle. He was sitting in the car with other soldiers And suddenly he sees an old comrade of his stand up in the aisle and gesture for him to come out. And he looks up at him and says, wait a second, how can you be here? You died in the battle several months ago. What's what's going on? And the guy insistently waves for him to come down the aisle. So he gets up completely dumbstruck and follows this vision out of the car. And as soon as he leaves the door into the next compartment, this enormous explosion goes off behind him and throws him into the aisle of the next car. And it turns out that other, that car behind him has been hit by mortar fire and everybody in that car died. So it's interesting to me, here's a man who supposedly had lost his faith and yet this happened to him. Did it restore his faith? Not then. He eventually came back to the church. You know, another, I think, 10 years later, he finally returned to the church. But I think... There had always been this kind of second sight in his family. His mother had seen the dead. She was a midwife in this village in the Black Forest and was famous for having kind of visions of the dead on the side of the road and babies she had lost and people she had lost, seeing them again. So I think there was this this sense of belief and mysticism in the family. But after the war, he just couldn't take part in, in the organized religious part of it, I think, again. He, he was just too too disillusioned. Before we leave that story, will you share his mother's vision of his brother, who had a very different fate in the war? Yeah, that was the other great story that came out of that. His brother was in Flanders in an even more vicious battle in some ways. And she 
was back home in the Black Forest toward the end of the war, laying in bed one night. And suddenly she wakes up and she hears footsteps outside on the sidewalk outside her their little farmhouse. And she shakes her husband awake and says, oh, Yosef has come back from the war. And then she listens a little again and then she realizes those aren't really... It can't be Yosef. Uh, it must just be his ghost coming. And she says to my great-grandfather, she says, oh, now now I know that Yosef has died. And then a week later, they get notice from the front that he actually had died that night in Belgium. So again, these were the kind of stories that structured my childhood that my mom often told them, and both of them had those kind of experiences. Carl Gunner grew up in a small, unusually devout village, and it was common for people there to believe in spirits. We'll hear more later about the spiritual, metaphysical experience that Burkhart Bilger's mother, Adel Trout, had, even after she'd moved to America. But let's go back to the life of Adel Trout's father, Carl Gunner, after the First World War. After he'd lost his conviction in a just God— and abandoned the plans he had made in adolescence to become a Catholic priest. Instead, Carl Gunner became a schoolteacher after all, and he ended up joining the Nazi Party in his mid-30s. There were actually many aspects of the Nazi Party that a man of his temperament and background might have found appealing. He joined in 1933, and he came in through the, the Winter Hilleswerk, the winter charity drives. And that was a program that existed before the Nazis, but Hitler kind of co-opted it. And my grandfather, the strongest strain in him was a desire to make German society more equitable. Now, to us knowing what the Nazis did, that sounds absurd. And I do think there was always this element of blinkeredness where equitable for white Germans, you know, who are not Jewish, who are not gypsies, who are not all kinds of other things the Nazis didn't like. I mean, the great majority of the population, but but still, that was the group he was focused on. And he had grown up in the Black Forest, like I said, sharecroppers, and people who could barely make a living. The Black Forest at this time, according to Burkhart Bilger, was practically medieval, the bulk of the land being owned by the Prince of Furstenberg. Farmers didn't generally own their farms, and Carl Gunner's father leased the land he worked. But he was also a gambler. And one night, when Carl was just a baby, his father gambled away his house and garden, all he really held claim to in this world. Distraught, he went home and drank disinfectant, killing himself. The tragedy was not lost on his son, Carl, as he grew to manhood. And so he was, you know, keenly aware of poverty and the crushing effect it could have on people. And so for him, these promises that Hitler and the Nazis made that everybody should be able to own a house, that everybody should be able to own a car, that we're going to make this society work for everyone, not just for the elite, that in fact the elite were not not so welcome, not so privileged under the Nazis. Those held an enormous appeal to him. And he was kind of willing to blind himself to the terrible things, I think, in order to make that happen. Was it an active blinding or was there a point 
as the war progressed where his confidence waned? Maybe give us some examples. Absolutely. I mean, he was active in the sense that, yeah, he led the Hitler youth in his village and he went to the two Nuremberg rallies where Hitler laid out his anti-Semitic program pretty clearly, very clearly. Germans at the time, there was a phrase, nothing's eaten as hot as it's cooked. This idea that the guy's a blowhard, he makes big statements, but he doesn't really mean it. You know, and we see that in our own politics all the time that we make those kind of excuses. But he believed in the principles of national socialism. He was a didactic, he was a school teacher, and he believed in teaching those principles. You know, he pretty quickly became disillusioned with it at some level. And he got at cross purposes with the local party leadership when they persecuted one of his fellow teachers and, and had him transferred to another town because he hadn't been a sufficiently vociferous party member. And so my grandfather wrote a, a letter, which I have, where he, he basically says that the party in, in this area has become taken over by madmen, megalomaniacs, you know, which honestly was kind of a, a dangerous thing to say in this village. And, and it kind of was true for him in general. He was always kind of willing to make those kind of statements. He was both a, a rule follower and a believer. And he was also a very principled guy that if he saw something going wrong, he was not afraid to say it. Those two things went together in him. I interviewed a number of his former students and they all kind of said the same thing. They said he was very strict. He would lead class with his violin songs. And if somebody sang off key, he would hit them with the bow and say, you're singing false. But they all said he was a very good teacher, which honestly, in especially under the German occupation, was not at all a given. I mean, Hitler's whole idea about education was that it's kind of a waste of time, that really what we need to do is educate soldiers and workers. And so the Nazi curriculum in Alsace and a lot of Germany was terrible. If you were going to learn chemistry, it was all about the chemicals in bombs or poisonous gases. If you were going to learn math, it was all about the trajectories of missiles. If it was biology, it would be the genetics of races and, you know, kind of anti-Semitic things in that. And my grandfather... His students told me that he didn't do that. He would do some of what was required of him. You know, when you walked into class, they would have to stand up and say Heil Hitler and raise their hands. He would do what was also required, which was to have a big map of Europe in front of the class and show where the German army was and where their recent victories were. And they'd have to cut newspaper clippings out and monitor the advance of the Reich. But then after half an hour, 45 minutes, they would get down to business and he would teach real math and science and literature. I mean, they all kind of admired him, honestly, as a teacher. And despite the fact that he also wore his uniform to class, it was was kind of, you know, surprising. Your mother was alive during this time when he was teaching in occupied France, right? Yes. And, And what did she know as a child of his Nazi affiliation? And then what did she tell you as you were growing up before you knew all these stories from your research? So she was born in 1935, four years old when the war starts, 10 years old when it ends. She didn't know really anything about politics. She's too young for that. I think the biggest impact was simply that her father wasn't around. I mean, it was an unusual situation. You have to understand their village is on one side of the Rhine and half an hour away by bicycle, an hour away by bicycle is Alsace. And all my grandfather would do is every Sunday evening, he would leave home And he would ride his bicycle and he would go stay in a boarding house for the rest of the week. And on Friday afternoon after school, he would come back home across the Rhine and be back in Germany. 
So my mother was mostly aware of her father just being away from home all the time during the war. Burkhart Bilger's mother, Edeltraut, would go back to graduate school in history when Burkhart was in the fourth grade. She wrote her dissertation on the German occupation of France, and she would talk to her children about the Vichy government. But very little about my grandfather. And in fact, it was not something she ever investigated while she was working on her PhD. It was just, I think, too close to home. I learned that he was a Nazi party member, um, but that was about it. That changed in 1983. This was after Carl Gunner had died. My little sister and my father and my mother went to Europe. My dad was was a physicist, and he was giving a paper on white noise at a physics conference in Paris. And so they all flew together to Paris. And then they were driving from Paris down to southwestern Germany to see my relatives. And as they're driving, they pass this sign that says Bautenheim, which is the village where my grandfather was a Nazi party chief in the occupation. And my mother kind of sits up in her chair and says, hey, could you pull over? I want to visit this village. He goes, we don't have time. We're almost home. She says, no, I want to see this. So they drive into the village. Edeltraut Bilger would later tell Burkhart that she felt her father urging her along in this quest of sorts. And she knew, because she had been there when she was eight, she knew that the schoolhouse was the grandest building in town, was now the town hall. So she gets him to park nearby, and she says she felt a voice saying, now you have to go to the school. And she walks into the schoolhouse, and she kind of walks around. And she thinks to herself, there's nothing for me here. It's just bad memories. What, why am I here? I mean, the place had been kind of transformed and remodeled, so it didn't even spark that much memory in her. So she's leaving. She's going back to the car to see my father when she sees an old man with a little wagon and two kids in it. And there was that voice again that said, Now you have to walk across this courtyard. Now you have to talk to this man. You need to ask him. And she says to herself, Wow, this guy, he looks like he's about the age my father would be if he were still alive. So she rushes across the courtyard to him. She says, Excuse me. My father, Carl Gunnar, was here during the war. Would you happen to have known him? And the old man just is dumbstruck and doesn't say anything for a moment. And then says, know him? I saved his life. And it turns out this man's name is George Chill. He was the head of the French resistance in that village. And he and my grandfather had kind of worked together helping to get people out of concentration camps, out of re-education camps, getting people excused for some of the mistakes they made. And in 1944, when the French Liberation Army came in and liberated the village, they gathered up all the Nazi leaders and the local collaborators and bound them to a tree. And we're going to shoot my grandfather, especially, I think, because he was the head party chief. And George Chill walked up and said, no, not this guy. He's been working with me. You know, you can send him to prison camp if you want and do your investigation, but he's not somebody you should kill. And so he saved his life. Everything that the family had feared about Carl's past from this point forward becomes tempered by the good works, some small, some bold, that Carl had done in the occupied village of Bartenheim in Alsace. But something more happened there as well. 
to the faith of Carl Gunner's daughter, Edeltraut Bilger. My mother is a very circumspect, very shy person. It's not something she would have naturally done. I mean, you're in this kind of quiet, closed-off village. It's not the most obvious thing to kind of accost an old man and say, hey, did you know my father 40 years ago? But she said she had this voice in her head. And, you know, my mother was very religious growing up, and she was very religious when I was a young boy. My brother and sister went to Catholic school, and and we were churchgoers for a long time. So that was a big part of her life. I mean, she kind of lost her faith in the 70s, I think partly because, to be quite frank, that the priests in Oklahoma, in our town, were quite lame. They were not um, not good minute, didn't give good sermons. Uh, it was something she'd kind of lost. But I feel like, like that experience of that happening in Azaz kind of restored some of her faith. It was something, it meant a lot to her, and it kind of tapped into a a religious slash mystical streak that she'd had in her whole life before that. Burkhart Bilger is the author of Fatherland, a memoir of war, conscience, and family secrets. You'll find my full conversation with him in season five, episode six. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. In this episode, we're remembering some of our favorite Constant Wonder moments from 2023. Just a reminder that if you like what you hear, you should check out our catalog from previous seasons at byuradio.org slash constantwonder or on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, in 1938, the raging rapids of the Colorado River were still untamed and undammed when a pair of female botanists captured the country's imagination by attempting to run the river through the Grand Canyon. They were willing to pursue a plant collection all the way to what felt like the ends of the earth. We turn now to a remarkable story of moxie and adventure. It's the story of two of the first known women to attempt to run the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, Lois Jodder and Elzada Clover. They were botanists from the University of Michigan, and they teamed up with a ragtag team of boatmen, including a guide who had never run the river. Our story begins with Clover, whose passion for a particular plant led to an expedition that riveted the nation. To get that story, our host, Marcus Smith, spoke with Melissa Sivany, author of Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. Here's an excerpt. There's something unavoidably amusing about a botanist named Clover. She surely must have tired of the joke. This particular Clover had a thing for cactus. The whole reason she went into botany was because she was obsessed with cactus. And she had this idea that she wanted to make a complete cactus collection of all the cacti in the Southwest, which is pretty ambitious. She struggled to find any support or funding for the project. And so she she did it on her own time in the summers, kind of between her teaching responsibilities. She would take her car and drive out as far west as she could get and pick up cactus on her own dime. Let's put this in clear perspective. In 1937, there was no interstate highway system. Roads were often rocky and rutted. 
Most any remote destination meant rough going with vast distances. Elzada Clover was living and working in Michigan, and with this cactus obsession of hers, she headed out solo, southward and westward, driving and driving and driving. She was doing this in the summer of 1937. She was out in Utah collecting cactus and staying at a place called the Mexican Hat Lodge. Mexican Hat, Utah is a tiny desert town on the edge of the silty San Juan River, not far from the Arizona border. The settlement takes its name from a large natural rock formation that looks like a sombrero. Today, in 2023, Mexican Hat has a meager population of a couple dozen people, and back in 1937, it was a fraction of that size. And one evening at the lodge, she sits down and talks with the person who owns it, whose name is Norm Nevels. And she discovers that he also has a a deeply held dream, which is to start a commercial river running business down the Grand Canyon. And at this time in his life, he had been taking tourists down the San Juan River, which is a tributary of the Colorado, and it's a nice, calm, quiet river. But he had never done the Grand Canyon. He had never done any kind of like whitewater river rafting before. So he was pretty inexperienced, and they get to talking, and they realize that this would be the perfect way for Clover to get her cactus collection. I mean, there's really no way to make a complete plant collection in the Grand Canyon hiking it. You have to go by river. And so the way Elzada Clover described it later is that they cook up this crazy plan in just a couple of minutes. They're going to recruit some more people. They're going to build some boats. You can't just go out and buy boats for whitewater river rafting at this time. And they're going to go down the Colorado River. When Elzada Clover came back from Mexican Hat and started looking around for a couple of scientists to recruit, She knew that she had to recruit a woman because it was the 1930s and it would be inappropriate for her to go off into the wilderness with just a group of men. Elzada Clover's concern for social propriety wasn't without reason. After the trip, our grad student in this story, the aforementioned Lois Jodder, whom the older botanist ultimately selected to go along with her, gave talks about the adventure to community groups. Here's what happened at one of her presentations. A woman came up afterwards and leaned over close to me and she said, tell me, did anyone try to take advantage of you on that trip? And my mouth, I know, dropped open and I said, oh, oh, you know, oh no. Uh, Everybody was very, very pleasant and very friendly. And she said, well, they're men, aren't they? That's Lois Jodder herself, sitting in a boat along the San Juan River in Mexican Hat, Utah, reminiscing for writer and river historian Lou Steiger. Now, Elzada Clover didn't want to be responsible for someone else's fate and kind of hesitated. Lois Jodder was 24 years old at the time of this trip. She was a student at the University of Michigan. She was well on her way to getting her Ph.D., and she had formerly been a student of Elzada Clover's. Elzada Clover's a bit of a daredevil. She loves taking risks. She loves the idea that there's going to be danger. But she's nervous about inviting Lois because she's, she's frankly worried about what could happen. The 40-year-old professor does, however, see her way clear to inviting the younger botanist to join the venture. Lois just jumps on it. She's thrilled to be invited on this trip. And she spends a lot of time over the next few months writing letters to her family, particularly her parents, 
to basically convince them to let her go. They are not (laughs) excited about this. They're excited about the opportunity for their daughter, but they're quite nervous about the dangers she's going to face. No sooner does word begin to circulate about Clover's ambitions than the naysaying begins. No woman has challenged the Colorado and survived. That phrase echoed everywhere, from the mouths of skeptical university colleagues and whitewater boating experts and, of course, fearful family members. Ultimately, the newspapers chimed in, too. It was true. No woman had survived the Colorado. None that we know of, but it was also a deceptively silly thing to say, because only one woman had ever tried. December 29th, 1928. The Associated Press. Hopes for canyon venturers dying. Veteran Riverman thinks Hyde and wife perished in swirling waters. Conviction that Glenn R. Hyde and his wife perished on the swirling waters of the Colorado River, which they attempted to navigate on a honeymoon trip, was expressed here today by Emery Kolb, Veteran Riverman. The Riverman reported that examination of the scow used by the couple to shoot the river rapids indicates that disaster had overtaken them near where the craft was found, lodged in the rocks which clog the tortuous canyon riverbed. The disappearance of Bessie Hyde with her husband had left a lot of people thinking of the river as no place for a woman. One man loudly voicing the sexism so typical of that era was a certain Buzz Holmstrom, Holmstrom was an Oregon gas station attendant in his 20s, and just the year before, he had made quite a splash nationally with his own hand-built version of a Mackenzie River drift boat. So he was quite famous at this time. He had gone down the Grand Canyon solo in 1937, the first solo trip on record, and he had become kind of a media darling. And there were all of these stories about Buzz, who was, they described him as a he-man's hero, right? This incredibly manly person, and it was his manliness that (laughs) enabled him to survive on this dangerous trip. And he was quoted in the Saturday Evening Post. At Green River, Utah... I heard about the last expedition before me. A daring young river runner named Hyde had started there with his bride to honeymoon through the canyon. You know, women have their place in the world, but they do not belong in the canyon of the Colorado. That article came out in February of 1938, just a week after Lois Jodder tells her entire family that she's going to go run the Colorado River. And it's terrible timing, and everybody she knows reads the story. And there's this flurry of sudden concern, like, wait a minute, only these, like, burly, manly men can do these kinds of things. So... Buzz starts off in the story as almost the villain, like he overshadows their trip. It's very frustrating. Clover worries that she's not going to get grant funding after that article comes out. You know, it has real consequences for their planning. Because the danger of what they were about to do, along with the fact that they were female, quickly overshadowed their scientific focus. Here's Lois Jodder again, decades later, speaking with Lou Steiger. The first publicity that came out about the trip came because I told a friend of mine what my summer plans were. And 
her mother looked at me and she said, have you seen that river? Do you know what you're doing? And I lied and said, yeah, I've seen the river. Um, knowing that I had seen pictures of it, read all of the accounts of it, and I didn't feel that I was unaware of the fact that it was a dangerous trip. So the headline came out in the student newspaper, which was widely read in Ann Arbor, that said, women botanists to collect on the Colorado River. And the news services picked that up. And that was really more publicity than, certainly than, than I wanted. So the story, Melissa, gets a little bit out of control? Oh gosh, it does. It, it, really, it really does mushroom. And by the time they actually drive out to Green River, Utah, it's national press. And the focus, again, is really on the fact that there's two women attempting to do this trip. And Clover and Jada really had to push back against this press, and it was frustrating for them. They were constantly telling journalists, like, we know what we're doing, which they maybe didn't entirely, but they were telling them, we know what we're doing, and we're going to make this plant collection, and we're doing this because we're botanists. We don't care about this idea of women conquering the Colorado River. That doesn't matter to us. What matters to us is making this plant collection. The expedition's first few days were actually peacefully picturesque. Even today, the run from the town of Green River, Utah, down to the confluence with the Colorado River is generally placid. The boats worked well, the team got their river legs, and the overarching botanical purpose of the two women scientists could be pursued fairly easily, with Elzada Clover focusing on her coveted cacti, Lois Jodder keeping a sharp eye out for evening primrose, her specialty. But formidable rapids would soon grow audible in a section of what is now Canyonlands National Park. June 27th, United Press. Voyagers drifting into Cataract Canyon, scene of tragic end for many adventurers. The two women and four men who are daring the turbulent Colorado River Rapids were believed today to be drifting toward Cataract Canyon, beyond which there is no escape until they reach Lee's Ferry. There is no complete record of those who have lost their lives in similar ventures. Our two botanists with their support crew received a very rude welcome from this infamously difficult stretch of water, very nearly confirming the worst fears of all the doubters who had been prophesying mayhem, bedlam, death, destruction. They're about four days into the trip. They've been going down the Green River, a tributary of the Colorado, which is a nice quiet river. And they, they reach the confluence and they see the Colorado River for the first time. The whole crew, there's six of them all together. None of them have any experience with this trip. And they're all kind of astonished. They're all looking at this river like, <laughs> what have we got ourselves into? And so they're standing on the riverbank, staring at their very first rapid, trying to decide how to navigate going through it. And one of the three boats, which is tied up on the shore, pulls away, and it heads off downriver all by itself. Norm Nevels had named his boats the Wen, the Botany, and the Mexican Hat. The last one named, of course, after his hometown. It's the Mexican Hat that breaks loose from its rope and decides to brave the rapids all on its own, nearly leading to the ruination of this whole venture just as it's getting underway. This is really bad because you have to keep in mind that their food supplies are split between these boats and they've just started the trip and there's no place to stop or resupply. 
With the Mexican hat bobbing somewhere downriver, laden with vital provisions, nobody on board, well, to call that a bad omen is a bit of an understatement. The crew hadn't even yet hit the very first rapid of Cataract Canyon. But it was time for that now, and a fearful sequence would ensue. Six of them were split between two boats. Everything unfolded with dizzying speed. Remember, they were novices, essentially, careening through whitewater with scarcely an ounce of control. People fell out of the boats. At one point, Norm Nevels would look up and see Lois Jodder rushing by solo, unable to stop. In all of the commotion, Lois Jodder and one of the crew members named Don Harris eventually came together, swept along far ahead of the rest of the team. And once they got through the worst of it, to their great relief, they spied the lost Mexican hat. And then they did what probably any of us would try to do in those circumstances. They tied it in tow and pulled it over to safety up onto the riverbank. And by now they're several miles downriver. And so Don Harris decides he's going to walk back and he's going to tell everybody that it's all okay. And he leaves Lois Jodder there and he tells her, I'll come back for you. But he doesn't show up. And she doesn't have any idea what happened to him. He just never returns. Norm Nevels records in his journal what happened that night. June 24th. Elzada, Bill, and I went to sleep side by side, trying to make up for inadequate covering. We slept feet towards the river and some four feet back from the edge. 1 a.m., I awoke yelling with the sensation of the river taking me. The river had risen and cut the bank out from under us until our legs were actually dangling out over the water. The day dawns coolish, the river is in full flood and is a dreadful sight, with the enormous big trees rushing past. The upstream group worried about Lois alone on the river. No need, she actually made out better than they did. I loved this scene. Early in the project, I ran across a letter that she wrote a few weeks later to her mother describing what happened to her that night. She's all alone, all night, on the banks of this incredibly wild river. Everything that could go wrong went wrong that day. And she builds a fire, and she eats some toast, and she has two of the boats, so she has almost all of the bedding and almost all of the food. Everyone else is quite miserable that night and freezing cold. She's quite comfortable. And she just describes the experience of listening to the river and the sounds of the night around her. And she says later to her mother, I had a lovely time. That was Melissa Sivany, the author of Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. We had a lovely time interviewing Sivany and working with her to tell the tale of the epic voyage of botanists El Zeta Clover and Lois Jodder. To find out how they fared on the rest of their journey and to meet the colorful characters involved along the way, check out Season 6, Episode 1 of Constant Wonder. Up next, we'll meet a range rider whose job is to keep wolves and ranchers at peace, but who sometimes ends up rescuing the odd cougar as well. I'm Tenery Taylor. 2023 is coming to a close, and we couldn't say goodbye without listening back to a few of our favorite conversations from this past year. Daniel Curry is a range rider whose job is to help ranchers and wolves get along, or at least keep the peace between the two. He became passionate about working with wolves, 
thanks to a dream he kept having at night when he was a child. The dream would factor into a career decision he was trying to make as a young adult. He wanted to get a job working with animals, but he wasn't sure exactly where to turn. I had a reoccurring dream. I've only had two in my life. And one of them was when I was very young and it dealt with wolves. And it was something that just kept happening. It just kept cropping up randomly. And I didn't really consider it that much when I was younger. I've always had an affinity for animals. And I was like, you know, at at a certain point, you're going to have to pick a species. There's so many that are in need right now of help. But then I remember that dream and I was like, wow, that, that maybe was telling me something when I was a much younger individual that this is your path. At 20, I was just like, wow, wolves are just, they're such a polarizing topic. They have so much heat on them in so many different angles that they need a lot of help. And I believe that they can teach us many things about being better humans. I was like, well, let's start calling zoos or, you know, I'm just going to find a place that has wolves. I'm going to figure it out. Some people land their dream job without having had an actual dream. Maybe the fact that Curry's dream was no mere figure of speech and something that came back and back. Maybe this was the thing that pushed him toward a place called Wolf Haven. Wolf Haven is a highly respected nonprofit. It's a sanctuary for captive and displaced wolves on Highway 99 just south of Olympia, Washington. He was still quite young when he first started making overtures toward the people running the place. I called them up. I was like, are you hiring by any chance for your animal care staff? And they're like, no, we're not currently. And they're like, we're always accepting volunteers and and you can do that. So I went down there and volunteered for not too long, actually, before becoming employed. And I was like an hour and 45 minute commute one way. And I did that for like five years, I think. Anyways, yeah, I just started volunteering, showed up. They were like, well, you know, we have a job opening in the maintenance facility. And would you be interested in that? And I was like, man, I don't want to do maintenance. And I kind of talked to my family. My mom had a really valid point. Take the maintenance job and just offer your services whenever you can. And hopefully they'll see that. That happened pretty quickly, actually. I had the animal curator ask me to go in one day and, and she's like, are you comfortable coming into an enclosure? We actually need a blood sample from one of the red wolves and I need somebody to watch my back while I'm in there doing that. You know, I was so, so excited to have that opportunity. And I was like, I, I just will not mess this up. I want to glue my eyes to these animals and make sure that this person's safe and make sure that those animals are as as least stressed as possible. She did what she needed to do, and and we came back out, and she's like, well, I really felt comfortable with you there. Would you be interested in working in this? I was like, of course. That's That's why I was volunteering. That's why I took the maintenance job. The next time I was asked to go into an enclosure, it was a pretty powerful moment. It was like this little wooden box that was about three feet wide, about six feet long, and it was on the ground, and the wolves had kind of dug into it, so they made it like a makeshift den box, basically. I'll tell you right now, captive wolves are a lot less scared of people. (laughs) They're very habituated to their presence, and they are actually much more dangerous, potentially, than a wild wolf. If I just walk towards them, they take off. If you walk towards a captive wolf in their enclosure, they're like going to walk towards you, going, what the hell are you doing in here? And, uh, it was a girl named uh, Gray that we were having to pull a blood sample from. And so I went in there with the animal curator. She was having trouble. So we got another person to assist because she's like, I need you in here you know, to hold the vein off. When you're pulling blood from an animal, you have to kind of hold their vein off and it increases blood pressure. And then you can actually find the vein easier and, and pull your sample. 
So she and I are in this den box and she's just having trouble. And I, I just knew in my heart, I was like, I can do this. You know, I, I can do this all by myself. I can hold off. I've got big hands, long arms. You know, I was like, and I've been working as a vet tech prior to this. And I just remember for a while there before I actually said it though, I was kind of like, Oh, don't say it. You know, finally just in my heart of hearts, it was like, it's going to burst out. So I was like, I can do this if you want. I, I'm totally confident that I can. And she's like, are you sure? And man, I remember that was a, the first time that I actually ever been close to close and touched him in that manner. We're laying on our bellies. There's a wolf at the end of this box that was three feet by three feet by six feet long. And we're just kind of, I mean, I'm not a small person. So, I'm, you know, there's not tons of room to move in there. I've got my big spaghetti arms that are trying to navigate this small space. And so it's kind of like this already dicey scenario when you look at it that way. There's a wolf back at the end of this. You're kind of like crawling down a shotgun tube and there's a wolf back there and you got to draw a blood sample. I grabbed Gray's arm there and she let me process the whole thing. I held her, you know, I held her vein off with my left hand, pulled it with my right hand, put him in the the tubes and handed it back to Wendy and was like, thank you for giving me that opportunity. We backed out and she's like, wow, that was really impressive. And that's about right when I, I totally was moved into animal care. And that first time that I made physical contact with a wolf was extremely powerful. When you're working with wolves, you're working with their natural social behavior. Um, they're either going to challenge you and you're going to have to deal with that portion or they're eventually going to submit to you. And it's a way of giving themselves to you. It's like a trust thing that they're handing you. That's the only thing that they have to give, really. Daniel Curry would go on to work with wolves in the wild. As a range rider, he has to protect the interest of ranchers who need him to keep wolves off the land where their cattle graze. And yet, he still wants to allow wolves to live, well, as wolves. He works on a ribbon of land not unlike a DMZ, a no-man's land, a no-wolf's land. It lies between where cattle are grazing and wolves are hunting. Some of these lands are privately owned, but much of it is public land. By tracking the wolves and disrupting their comfort zone, he nudges them to go a little further into the wild to look for their deer or elk, rather than for cattle. And he does that simply by patrolling the gap, looking for wolf sign and tracks, and then nudging them by his very presence, even by his smell, to move on. Sometimes he has to get a little creative. Imagine a big calving pasture. It's an open portion of a valley bottom. It's all fenced off. That's where these guys will have their calves. So you have a big mama cow. She drops a calf. And then right on the edge of that calving pasture, imagine just wilderness. It goes up to the mountains. That's for the wolves, the cougars, the bears, the all these other animals that are trying to find their niche and find their ability to live. These animals that are watching them from the hillside going, hmm, that's where all our food is. Even these little cows, those are possible easy prey. So what'll happen is they'll come down and they'll kind of start with uh, just patrolling the edge, finding out like what's going on. What they're doing is they're weighing risk to gain. Wildlife, especially wolves specifically, are masters at this skill. And they look at something and go, okay, I can go in there and get a cow, like a little baby calf. What is the risk there? Because the gain is obvious. That's an easy gain, easy prey. If I can hunt it, if I can get it away from its mom, it's very vulnerable. So what you don't want is those guys to be sitting on the side of the fence having enough time to think about that. We 
we utilize tools like Flagery, for instance. It's like a electric fence that has foot and a half to maybe two foot long red flags that are maybe four inches wide and they sit there and hang. So wolves specifically are neophobic. They're fearful of like new things in their environment. Now we have this fence they came up to. Originally there's nothing there. They're like, wow, we can just crawl into this fence. There's not a lot of risk there, but there's a lot of game. Now that same scenario, they come up to that flagger and they hear these noises. That flag will actually make a noise as it sits there and moves in the wind. So now they hear these little ticking noises all around them. They see movement out of their corner of their eye and they're like, wait, what was that? So we have the flagery up, then we maybe have some fox lights or we maybe have some motion lights. So I'm sitting in the field, I have motion lights at strategic areas, I have game cams up to kind of watch the pattern of the animals. They, they can smell a human out there, they can't really see me. They have this these flags that are making this noise. If they walk to this other gate to try and maybe circumvent the flags, they're gonna maybe trigger a motion light. And then that motion light tells me that something was over there and it's not a cow. So then I get up and walk over there and they're like, wow, this is just too much action. I cannot really have this happen. This is just a non-option. It's not a viable way to feed myself tonight because there's a high chance that I might just get killed, so. There's an unusual degree of empathy in this man, Daniel Curry. Thinking like an animal really is his stock in trade and the key to his survival. This kind of empathetic thinking came in more than a little handy once when his services were retained to move a cougar out of a crawl space under a barn to keep the rancher from shooting it. When he got there, it turned out to be not just one, but two. I was already on my way to that property to track wolves and to act as a buffer like we were talking about. And it was wintertime. Then I got a call that, that night prior and he's like, you know, I'm going to have my neighbor come over here and shoot this one cougar is all he knew about at that time. He just was like, I have a piece of haying equipment in that barn that I need to service it and bring it out so I can have it ready. And I'm scared to go in there. And I was like, well, I'll see what I can do when I get over there. And I'll do that first and I'll get him out of there somehow. And he's like, are you sure? And I was like, absolutely not a problem. You can see him from the outside. I did a perimeter check and I went in and tracked. I was like, wow, there's it's a lot of activity that I'm seeing. And I think there's more than one animal. So I put my head in there and I'm looking around. I was like, there's two of them. Okay. I kind of went in perpendicular to them because I wanted to put pressure on them and have them shoot out the, the opening that they were using for an entrance and exit. So I'm six, five and a half. The space that I'm in is about at most three feet tall. So I'm like on my forearms crawling over this, the, you know, the floor joist, which is, it's a big old barn. So it's just a big log. So I'm having to like crawl over that. And then I was trying to get a little bit behind him. But when I came in, it was like right on him. It was like <laughs> right there. Curry was taking video the whole time. And in that video, you can see these beautiful animals. The very moment he first spies them and then realizes what he's up against. Here's the audio. There's the meow meow. We're close together, aren't we? All right, here's the deal, guys. There's two of you. We need to get out, okay? You're a beautiful cat. I appreciate you guys. That's why I'm under this barn, risking my life to get you out. There's only two of you, right? The first one, the female, she actually takes off, not really very quickly, but she leaves. And then I'm dealing with this other male back here and trying to like get him out. And all I have for non-lethal tools at this time is a ski pole that's about four feet long 
my snowshoe and I have a couple of flares. They're small, basically like fireworks that are fired from a little pistol. They just make a screaming noise. So I'm kind of poking him and he's not going. And finally, I don't know why I was, I just meowed to him. Cause I was like, you're dealing, I feel like I'm dealing with a domestic cat. So I was like, <laughs> meow. And he grabs my ski pole and he starts playing with it. I was like, holy crap. That's like, this is a domestic cat. I was like, you can't be playing with this. I was like, you got to go. And so we're having this exchange and, then all of a sudden he stops and he breaks eye contact and he just kind of is like, Oh, I'm looking over here. And he just totally disengages from me. I was like, what would make you do that? <laughs> so I looked down the probably about 25 to 30 feet to the, to the exit that they were coming in and out of the barn crawl space. And I looked down there and that female had came back in and she's like, now looking at me, if you've ever seen like a cat, I don't know if you have a cat, but most people have seen this from domestic cats are kind of sitting there and you can tell they're, they're debating on pouncing or just watching <laughs> but their their haunches are down. They're kind of sitting on them and they're kind of locked and loaded. And at that point, I was like, okay, I need to get her out of here again. And that's what I ended up firing that flare. I picked a safe spot to just discharge it. She took off at that point really quickly. So I actually ended up using the second flare that I had to scare him out. And then I, I just tracked him from that point on there and I just kept following him for the rest. Probably the most of that day, I followed those guys and I came back down. Went up the other side of the mountain to track wolves and see what those guys were doing. Just trying to, again, create that buffer. But that was a perfect example of like a different option that was taken and was very successful. In that moment, Marcus, I felt like I was exactly where I needed to be doing exactly what I needed to do. It was a very tangible, it was very palpable. That experience was like exactly building the bridge between humans and animals. I left that day with a beaming smile. I happily hiked up the mountain, tracked wolves, and I left that day. And I was just like, how cool is that to be in that presence of those animals, be able to use non-lethal tools to move those animals out. I was able to teach that rancher, like, let's close this building up. Let's not make it a place to sleep during the winter. And it was just a really beautiful moment. It was like, wow, everybody lived that day. He was able to get his machine. The cougars never came back. And I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do. And that's just facilitate real change using this bridge technique. That's something that oh, it just made my heart glad, man. I was just felt really good about that day. And any days that follow that I can do that have been some of the most amazing and memorable days of my life. And talking with Daniel Curry was a memorable day for us. Curry's job is to help ranchers and wolves and cougars live together in peace. If you want to hear the whole conversation, you can find it in Season 4, Episode 5. Here at Constant Wonder, we talk to people whose experiences and perspectives on life make us pause in wonder at the creation and the creatures, animals and humans with whom we share this remarkable planet. It's a joyful quest, and we're thrilled to have you along with us. Season 7 of Constant Wonder launches January 17th, and you'll find it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tenery Taylor. This episode was produced by Eric Schultzka with help from Audrey Hughes, Lily Jensen, and Mamie Teeples. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.